Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Explaining history to young children is difficult when that history is filled with struggle and violence. A new exhibition at the High Museum features more than 80 artworks depicting people and themes of the civil rights movement told through children's storybooks. The show is called Picture the Dream, and we'll hear about it from the award-winning children's author Andrea Davis Pinckney and High Museum Education Director Virginia Shearer. First, an adult story of discrimination from a contemporary playwright. Dramatists Play Services has a new series called Technical Difficulties, plays for online theater. It's a collection of socially distant shorts designed to be performed on the internet due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Atlanta actor Chad Darnell will give a one-weekend-only performance of Forced, a new work by the acclaimed playwright John Cameron Mitchell. Chad Darnell joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Chad, would viewers need to be familiar with John Cameron Mitchell's first work, the wildly successful Hedwig and the Angry Itch, in order to understand Forced? I don't think they do because he gives a lot of backstory to the history of the play and uh, his travels with it. In fact, if you haven't seen Hedwig, it might be interesting to, to watch Forced first and then go back and watch the movie or, or see a production or listen to the soundtrack of the musical. Now, you portrayed the lead character of Hedvig on stage in 2018 and 2019. What's it like to portray John himself in this play? It's so, it's, it's, it's very meta because in <laughs> order to perform Hedvig, you really have to understand the entire history of the show from when he created the show. Back in the days when he was workshopping it in drag clubs, when he moved the play to the Jane Hotel 
because fans of the show have that understanding of the journey of the play in addition to the journey of the character. So that's, that's a thread that's within the performance of Hedvig because audiences expect that and they, they understand and respect the journey that John had with the piece. So having had that research in my past, in, in the two years that I did the play, and, and I visited the Jane Hotel in New York right before I did the, the run in Atlanta, it's really exciting. And especially as he's grown as a writer and director and myself, like now transitioning into writing and directing more from just having cast, been a casting director for years. And I've always been an actor, but it's really exciting. And you feel like you're not playing John Cameron Mitchell. And so people who've seen my version of Hedwig, they're seeing my version of John Cameron Mitchell. Ah, it's very bad. <laughs> it, it sounds it. Can you give us a synopsis of Forced? In 2008, John took the film Hedwig and the Angry Inch to one of the very first gay and lesbian film festivals in St. Petersburg. And he went with his friend Sasha, who was a Russian citizen but had left. So by Sasha going back to Russia with John, there was a lot of danger because he could have been forced into military service if they found out that he was still technically a Russian citizen. And when they get there, the police, the fire department, everybody was trying to shut the festival down. The festival programmers themselves were concerned about the safety of not only John, but of guests. They shut down the first venue, the opening night of the festival. And so they had to go underground and, and started doing the festival in secret locations. And they were, sending out invitations by text. I mean, I can't imagine like in the States having a film festival like that where you can't have a, a, a gay or, or LGBT film festival because the city's trying to shut you down and, and the dangers that go along with that. And most recently when I saw the movie Welcome to Chechnya, I had no idea the horrific atrocities that are happening to LGBT members in Chechnya, in Russia, and, and how they try to get out. So it's it's a really powerful piece about his, his week that he was there, meeting these people, becoming friends with them, and the respect that he had for them in, in putting this together. So this was his trip to Russia in 2008. In 2008, yeah, in October 2008. It's mind-boggling to think we have gay film festivals in so many cities and and we're proud of these cinematic offerings and not very long ago in Russia this is still scary underground work and it's still i mean it's the as you said underground is a very good word for it doing this benefit the reading itself all the proceeds are going to the uh, Rainbow Railroad, which is a group out of Toronto, which helps get people, LGBT members, out of Russia to start a new life in Canada and states. And, uh, and also for the Rainbow House, uh, which is a nonprofit here in Atlanta, which helps find affordable housing for LGBT members who can't afford housing or are homeless. So wonderful organizations. So how did you get involved with dramatists play services. We mentioned this new series, Technical Difficulties, is their initiative. It's been, as a writer and as an actor, this whole five months in quarantine has been creatively a nightmare because we can't do theater, we can't go to see theater. 
the works that we can create are sort of in our homes doing Zoom script reading. So this was a really great idea by dramatists to come up with a series of plays that could be performed and recorded in your own home. So it's not ideal. And of course, after we're back into the theater, this play can be performed on its own, on a stage. But unfortunately, right now, it's me and my iPhone in my apartment. <laughs> so it's, it's very, uh, it's very guerrilla. But that's part of this process. It's, it's taking something creative and, and making art out of it with the resources that we have. So will you be performing this one-man show live? I'm not doing it live. I'm, uh, it will be uh, pre-recorded. That way it's available on demand so that this weekend, anybody at any time during this weekend, you can go online and see it. Otherwise, it, uh, the timing-wise of like, okay, everybody, 8 o'clock <laughs> Friday night. So the on-demand process uh, requires it to be pre-recorded. On what platform will it be available? It's uh, available on a platform called uh, Show Ticks for You. And it is a service that allows people, not just through Dramatists, but other services, uh, people that are performing or have recorded, like there's a lot of uh, high school productions that are on there as well, and that you can go and, and watch online. It's kind of like Netflix for theater, I guess. <laughs> Tell us about performing in front of a virtual audience. Do you think that's easier than performing in person live? I miss performing. It's, it, I miss performing live. There's nothing like a, a packed, sold-out audience. And when you're, again, in your, in your kitchen <laughs> with your iPhone, there's not that immediacy of an audience that you're feeding off of. And with this piece in particular, like the production in the play of Hedwig, Hedwig talks directly to the audience the entire time. And with this, John is talking directly to the audience as well. So there, it, it, it's, it's basically making a little film in my house. But with the theatrical experience, again, that meta-ness of, of John and the play and the history of that festival. What is it about John Cameron Mitchell's works that especially appeals to you? When he premiered Hedwig and the Angry Ranch, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I grew up here in Atlanta, but I was working in LA when the movie came out. And I saw that movie probably five or six times at the Sunset Five. And it was just a character that we had never seen before. And I of course, seeing a creative do something like that, I knew that he started and he wrote it and produced it and directed it. I did a deep dive on who he was as a person, as an actor, as a performer, as a creator. And I just became a little fanboy on him. And, <laughs> and it's funny too, because I have a lot of friends who are friends with him. And over the years, they've been trying to introduce me to him and it's just never aligned where I've met him. And I've worked on like big TV shows and movies. And like, he's on my short list of people that I don't think I ever really want to meet because I just, I'm such a huge fan of his work and what he does. I did have a friend, he recorded a little video for me that's on my Instagram page. And I, I was so, I screamed when I saw it because he was like, hi, Chad, it's John Cameron Mitchell. And I, it was very funny, very sweet. And he, he, he mentioned that he knew that I had done Hedwig in the past. And he told me that as a creator, we have to keep creating during these times. Oh, 
Wait, so when you say you don't want to meet him, is that because sometimes heroes can disappoint us? No, I, I don't want to meet him because I will come across so awkward and weird that <laughs> he will look at me and like, please get me away from this person. And because I probably just not speak. I'll probably just sit there and be like, oh, thank you. Thank you for everything. Oh. But I just, especially with that show, with Hedwig, when, um, when I did it in Savannah and in Atlanta, it's such a hard part and I love a good challenge. And there's so many layers, even in, in the two years that I did, I'm still finding things in the show and about the writing and moments that you can play differently. And when Neil Patrick Harris and Darren Chris and Andrew Reynolds, when they all did interviews about the play, they've all said it's the hardest role they've ever done, which is exactly why I wanted to do it. I wanted that challenge. It's like training for a, an Ironman, that show, because the, you, the vocally you have to get your voice ready. And Hedwig was not necessarily the greatest singer, but he had to do uh, punk and ballads. And so you had to have a strong voice, not necessarily a beautiful voice. And I've never walked in heels before, and that nearly killed me, much less dancing up and down stairs in them, you know, seven inch heels. And uh, I've never done drag makeup before, and that was a whole learning process. And then the character itself is just such an incredible character of unrequited love, and then finds this new person inside of her at the end of the show. It's just, it's such a beautiful play. And, and I love that fans love the play, uh, the, the head heads as they call them, that show <laughs> up and wear the big wigs. And it's an experience that I really miss doing. Well, after reading through the script of Forced, how do you think American audiences will receive the play? compared to Russian audiences? That's a really good question because I know for me, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I did not know about the atrocities that were happening in Chechnya and with these people that are helping people start new lives. And if I'm one of those, I'm sure there are millions more of us here in America. And of course, we're living in very interesting times politically and I honestly, I'm excited for friends and, and family to watch this because it's, it's a story that we've not heard before. And it's a story that needs to be told. Atlanta-based actor Chad Darnell. He's portraying John Cameron Mitchell in the new play, Forced. The one-act performance will be available on demand August 14th through 16th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Scientific research shows that when our dogs stare into our eyes, they activate the same hormonal response that bonds us 
to human infants. That hormone is oxytocin, which plays a role in maternal bonding, trust, and altruism. Dogs seem to understand us in a way that no other animal does. Matt Hobbs is celebrating that special connection with his dual talent as a comedy improviser and musician. His project is called Puppy Songs, and he joins us now via Zoom. Matt, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Please tell us about your background as a musical improviser. This is a specialty within a specialty. Yeah, it's been a wild ride and a lot of fun. I, When I moved to Atlanta in 2010, almost 10 years ago at the end of the month, one of the first things I ever did that was cool thing to do in town was go see shows at dad's garage. Uh, I was I was fascinated with it. I loved watching the improv shows, but as a musician, I was especially interested in the piano player on the side of the stage who was making up the score, making up the, uh, the songs with the improvisers if they were singing songs. And I was like, I've got to find a way to do that. And so after a couple years of, uh, of seeing the shows, I auditioned and worked my way in in 2012. And for the last eight years, I have been uh, making up songs every weekend at Dad's Garage over there on the side of the stage at the piano, uh, as well as doing music direction and composing for some of the scripted shows that Dad's has put on. And it has been the most fun gig as a musician ever and something wholly unexpected until I, until I found it. Oh, well, Dad's brings so much joy to so many people. How did you come up with the idea to write puppy songs? It's funny because there's two natural resources that exist in our household uh, with my fiance and I and Lenny and Marley, our two dogs. And the two natural resources, one is I constantly walk around and sing songs to the dogs, just little silly things about eating breakfast or whatever the moment may be. And then the other natural resource was videos of dogs on my phone, constantly like, oh, Lenny's doing something cute, let me film that, or Marley's doing something silly, let's film that. And so I, uh, I was getting to the point where I wanted a new project to write short songs and produce different styles of songs. And I was like, well, let's just make the dogs <laughs> put on little sketches and little scenes and make a musical. Uh, and just combining some of the stuff I had lying around and uh, the songs that people make up for their dogs. And, and comments have come through in a lot of the videos where I think a lot of people sing to their dogs, musicians and uh, non-musicians and everyone alike. Well, so. yeah, and, and read to them and, and discuss our most intimate thoughts with them and ask their advice. <laughs> um, the list goes on. You wrote a song about my dog, Rex, which I, I will forever cherish, and you captured his essence in such a short time. Is, is there a, a time frame? I mean, how long does it take you to write a song? Inspiration doesn't always strike immediately. 
It's true. Uh, sometimes it takes a couple sittings to figure out what the story is going to be. In the case of Rex, it was it was faster because of the brilliant title that I was gifted in the in the Golden Observer. <laughs> There's a great story there, and and how that fit so well with the handful of videos that y'all were kind enough to send over. It just it was already a very cohesive story. So then the challenge was how do we just make it catchy, uplifting, and and entertaining uh, for for someone to get the get the Rex feel. Uh, and that was that was the challenge. Normally, they take anywhere from five to eight hours, actually, to make one. I was excited about this one because the story was so clear from the beginning. I just I wanted to see I wanted to see the finished product. But they do take they do take some time. Some of them it's it's like any other creative process. Sit down two hours and the water just runs brown the whole time, and you leave with nothing. Sometimes you leave with a good hunk of a concept, and that gets you excited to come back. Oh well, it, it, your lyrics your music it, it's all so very clever and with rex i should um explain what you're referring to the golden observer is the fact that it, despite being 100 percent retriever rex will not retrieve anything has never retrieved anything has human retrievers and i guess that's that's what you seized upon he is so intensely involved with humans though that i guess he figures meh why bother chasing a ball when you know you can be discussing deep meaningful things like <laughs> mel brooks movies or ace ventura pet detective important stuff are folks commissioning you to write songs about their dogs or as a gift for someone else uh, i have had a lot of requests i'm trying to i'm trying to figure out how to handle that for now because like i said the songs take the songs take a good amount of time and so i don't think there will ever be a point where i can do more than two or three in a given week just based on the time commitment but Right now, I'm actually doing a giveaway once a month for people who follow, and we gave one away to a corgi, a corgi one, a corgi from Portland, Oregon one a couple weeks ago, and we released that song this past Friday. It was a corgi named Eggs, and so they, <laughs> so, so they got a song, and that was fun because uh, it was our first corgi, and so I went all in on the, on the royalty aspect of it. It was a Pembroke Welsh corgi, and so... I did kind of a, a regal uh, sound palette and, and lots of egg was too much fun. That was fantastic. Now, do you think we might hear that on the next series of The Crown when it premieres <laughs> on Netflix? I hope so. Uh, oh, that would be great. Yeah, because the Queen's Corgis are prominent in that series. I read that you are currently writing a musical for Dad's Garage. Can you tell us about it, or is that secret? <laughs> no, I'll be happy to share what, what I uh, what I know. It's it's been a lot of fun. I'm teaming up with Travis Sharp, who is a veteran musical playwright and ensemble member, and so many great things at Dad's. And so he and I have been working together to develop and write a show. 
that we've been working on for a couple years. And the idea came one day after a show. I was talking to Kevin Gulis, uh, former artistic director, and he said, Matt, you need to, do, you need to pitch a show that only, only you could do. And I said, well, what does that mean? And so the two things I love more than anything are, uh, one is I grew up in New Orleans. So I love New Orleans. I love New Orleans culture. Um, I love the music. I grew up eating and singing and uh, with a big Italian family in New Orleans. And so that's still a big part of my, my life, even though I'm here. And uh, the other big thing is I love Agatha Christie period murder mysteries as well as Dorothy Sayers and Anthony Horowitz and a whole number of people who are kind of flowing in and out of there, watching Father Brown and, and oh, love yes. that genre. Oh, I watch a ridiculous amount of British crime drama. It's so fun. And so what I was tasked in trying to figure out is how can we make a murder mystery musical that takes place in New Orleans on a riverboat? And so that's, that's what we're writing. It's crazy. It's continuing to evolve. We've rewritten it umpteen times and are still doing so and working with John Carr, the artistic director at Dad's. We don't know when it's going to go up uh, in light of everything that's going on, but we're, we're still really, really excited about it. And a murder mystery musical that takes place in New Orleans. It's a farce. It's very silly. And uh, it, the theme is family. Uh, the theme is, is it's all about family and how New Orleans, for many folks, is, a, is like one big dysfunctional family where there's lots of different, different things all together, but somehow it just works in spite of its flaws or in spite of its good times and bad times. People show up. And so, yeah, the proverbial gumbo. Exactly. And you may have just said the working title. I think that's what we're leaning toward is, is gumbo, a period farce murder mystery musical. Oh, it sounds brilliant. And New Orleans, how lucky you are. New Orleans is the most musical city in America. I love New Orleans and I think you have so much rich background there to draw from. Do you think that you will continue writing puppy songs after quarantine in the so-called newer normal? I think so. I, I think it's something I enjoy, and that's something that is a huge part of it. Uh, and it's something that I think people are enjoying it, and I'm enjoying it. So I don't see any reason why why I would stop, even when things open up. It's funny because I've, I've written music and played music and done this for, for 10 years or in Atlanta. And this is the thing that gets the biggest audience is the dogs. But I'm very grateful for it. I'm very, very grateful for it. And I, I will gladly be known as the puppy songs guy for whatever reason and, and try to keep telling these fun dog stories that, that brighten people's day. It's the same reason why I love making music and playing at dad's is that it's something people look forward to. It's something positive. It's something that we can use music to tell stories and hopefully create a positive impact on people. And that's a gift that I hope to hold on to for as much as I can. So hopefully more and more puppy songs. Matt Hobbs is a musical improviser at Dad's Garage. You can watch his weekly puppy song videos on Matt's Facebook page or Instagram at Puppy Songs. And you can check out the video and song Matt wrote about Rex on our Facebook page and our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Explaining history to young children 
is not easy when that history is filled with struggle and violence. Coretta Scott King award-winning author Andrea Davis Pinckney has written numerous books about African-American culture for children and young adults, including award-winning picture books illustrated by her husband, Brian Pinckney. Andrea Davis Pinckney is the guest curator of a new exhibition at the High Museum, Picture the Dream. She joins us now with Virginia Shearer, the Director of Education at the High. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's nice to be here. What inspired the exhibition Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books? Well, Lois, the children's picture book is perhaps the best vehicle for sparking conversations with parents, young people about complicated issues. And as the world unfolds, as we see young people becoming activists themselves, as we look at history, as it relates to civil rights, we came together and we thought, what a remarkable way to present these topics to children and families in a museum setting. It's the first exhibition of its kind. There has never been a show that features the work of children's book illustrators, illuminating specifically the history and path of civil rights. And uh, it seems just like the, the right time and the right moment and the perfect vehicle. Andrea, what is it about children's books that allow the reader to comprehend difficult topics in a less disturbing way? Well, Lois, think about the children's books that perhaps you grew up with, or I grew up with, or we all grew up with. I have fond memories of my own parents reading to me and talking about what we were reading. The beauty of a picture book is just that, the pictures. So when a child is experiencing a picture book, it's not just the words, it's the visuals. And usually in most picture books, those illustrations are telling their own stories. So if a kid never reads the words, they can look at those pictures and experience an emotional reaction or attachment to what is happening. And again, with civil rights, how beautiful is that? I can sit with a child, we can look at the pictures, and we can have the visual story of civil rights in a way that you don't get in other vehicles and other kinds of books. No. Oh, I wish these books had been around when I was growing up. When you were asking me about the books my parents read to me, nothing with the depth and meaning that your books provide. I'm thinking about Boycott Blues, how Rosa Parks inspired a nation, which you wrote and your husband, Brian Pinckney, illustrated. And in addition to loving that you cast this story in the form of a blues song and that the narrator is this great hound dog who is singing the blues, you do not 
shy away from the scariness of what was at the core of her heroic gesture. The image that Brian Pinckney draws for Jim Crow is literally a crow. And it's a menacing, whirling presence on the page that's scary. And I think it's just such a marvelous point for discussing what it was that Rosa Parks achieved. But I was hoping you would also talk about how you cast the narrative. Because in addition to evoking the blues, you also have what feels like the language of some church elders with "Uh uh-huh and child. Would you talk about that? Yes. Well, Boycott Blues, How Rosa Parks Inspired a Nation is a collaboration between myself and my husband, uh, illustrator Brian Pinkney. We had a lot of fun working on that book and it's for the reasons that you described, Lois. We made a decision very early that we wanted to invite young readers on a journey, on the journey of the Montgomery bus boycotts. And the best way to do that would be to provide them with language that has musicality, is accessible, is in some respects fun, because when they come on that journey and they're with us and they are experiencing the blues through the the guitar of of that hound dog and walking those steps, then we can usher them into some of the more complex realities of what that boycott meant. Um, Interestingly enough, this year, 2020, as we embark on the Picture the Dream show, it is the 65th anniversary of Rosa Parks giving up her seat on that segregated bus. So it all came together. And yes, Brian's illustrations also provide, again, as I mentioned, that visual narrative where we see Jim Crow and his bony wing, you know, peck, peck, pecking with his beak at the folks who are enduring a year's worth of marching. So it is the marriage of words and pictures that invite young readers on this journey and allow the adults who are in their lives to have these conversations. Did you have a melody in mind or a particular blues song? Lois, I was working from the canon of blues music, which (laughs) if you listen to it, you know, it's very like, it's very gut bucket blues, you know, it's very from the gut. And that's how it felt when they were marching, you know, they were coming from the gut, they were going from the inside, they were enduring, they were marching, they were not giving up. It was sun, it was rain, it was uncertainty. And uh, that's what you get from a lot of blues music, a very emotional core, and you're just going along and you're sticking with it despite the heartache. And that's what we were conveying with Boycott Blues, How Rosa Parks Inspired a Nation. And then in the end, you have both a narrative and a visual metaphor With blue, would you talk about what blue means by the end of the story? Yes. Well, the blues is the narrative kind of refrain throughout. And in the end, 
the narrative does say, you know, blue is a mighty fine color when it's welcoming the dawn. You know, we can look at blue, the blues and blue in many ways, that it's hope on the horizon, that it's the openness of a sky. And uh, again, it reminds us that we, we go through, we endure, we stick with it, and there's always tomorrow. And uh, which really speaks to the, uh, one of the final sections in the exhibition, which is today's journey, tomorrow's promise. Again, we can go on that journey and have a promise of tomorrow. And that's what we're, we're hoping young people will embrace and continue to move forward with that idea. Sit in, how four friends stood up by sitting down is another book that you collaborated um, with your husband. Would you talk about how you approached telling what is essentially a violent story in a way that children can grasp and yet not turn away from? Yes, Sit-In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down is the story of the 1960 Greensboro, North Carolina, Woolworth sit-in. Four college students go into a Woolworth lunch counter. They refuse service because they're African-American. And so the book begins with a big, bold quote by Martin Luther King Jr. We must meet hate with love. We must meet hate with love. So when you open the book, you see that bold statement in big letters. And then in the spirit of inviting readers in so that they can sit at that lunch counter with the characters in the book, with the four students, um, you know, there's the narrative refrain. They sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. Those kids didn't budge. They didn't move. Until they were served, they refused. All they wanted was some food, a donut with coffee and cream on the side. And I know that when I share that book with kids who have read it again and again and read it with a parent or a caregiver, you know, they come back to me with that refrain. They sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. So again, it's the musicality that brings them into the narrative and allows them to uh, experience some of the complexities of, of what happened on that day in 1960. Yeah, but you don't shy away from the terrifying aspect of what those four friends and others faced with coffee being poured down their backs and ketchup on their heads. And you have read this in public settings, I'm sure, as well as to young children close to you. What do they say? What has been the reaction when you get to that part of the story? Well, Lois, you're right. We tell the stories of civil rights and we really tell the stories of civil rights. So there are the unpleasant aspects that young people, my my husband, Brian, the illustrator, and I really feel that we can't shy away from young people really need to know about that. So yes, in the book, Sit In, We talk about the scalding hot water poured on their heads, the ketchup on the shirts, the mustard, the spitting in the face, the pepper in the eyes. And when I talk to school children about that, 
I walk them through what happened. And I say, I want you to listen for a moment. If you left school today, you go with your friends, you're sitting down in a, in a restaurant and you glance over and you notice there are four people who are not being served and you're eating. What would you do? And I say to them, don't raise your hand, don't call out. Just sit with that question for a moment. Well, of course, all the kids raise their hands and call <laughs> out, you know, oh, I would do this, I would do that. And I say, let's just sit quietly for a moment and, and think about, I'm eating and there are four people over there who are not being served and they're not eating. I then invite them to raise their hands and they all, you know, it, it's such a testament to the, the hope of young people. They say, I would give them my food. I would, I would talk to the manager. I would talk to the waitress. I would walk out and, uh, you know, I challenge them a bit. I say, oh, come on. You would really go talk to a grown up. You know, what if your friends don't like you anymore? And then I flip it and I say, now you go into the lunch counter. You're hungry. You didn't have breakfast or lunch. Your stomach's growling. You're kind of not in a great mood because you're feeling so, you know, sorry, it's tummy so rumbly. And you sit there. Nobody brings you a menu. People are ignoring you. And all of a sudden, somebody pours scalding hot water down the back of your neck. They put ketchup and mustard. They squirt it all over that beautiful shirt. And they spit in your face and they take the pepper shaker and they throw that pepper in your eyes. What would you do then? And the, the hands don't go up so quickly. They do think about it. And they give me honest answers. You know, fourth graders tell me, I would fight back. I wouldn't allow that. There are fourth graders who say, I would sit there. And I challenge them. I say, oh, come on. You're going to sit there and let somebody pour scalding hot water on your head. And people say, yes, I would, because I don't want to start a violent protest. So these are things young people are talking about, thinking about, and through the art form of the picture book, experiencing. And what you are describing in the children's reactions, even the initial reactions about wanting to help the four who aren't being served, attests to the idea that literature should be about empathy. And that's what you are conveying here. I know that sit-in, how four friends stood up by sitting down, will become a play in conjunction with the Alliance Theater here. Is Pearl Clegg the playwright who is adapting the book? Yes, Pearl Clegg, friend, colleague, poet, playwright, novelist, activist, Atlanta resident, um, all around uh, powerhouse. Uh, national learned, treasure. National treasure, absolutely. When I learned that Pearl would be doing the adaptation, as one can imagine, I could not be more thrilled. And it's just been a pleasure to see how Pearl has brought a, a modern spin to the sit-in idea uh, in the play that is being produced by the Alliance Theater that will ultimately become a, a virtual experience. But again, Pearl has done a brilliant job in modernizing some of the aspects of what a protest is, what nonviolence is, and the characters in the play are young people who are standing up for issues that are of more modern concerns. In addition to race, issues of climate control, the environment, 
and uh, whether, uh, again, activism never ends. She is brilliant. She is brilliant. I can't wait to see the play. Virginia, picture the dream marks the High Museum's fifth collaboration with the Eric Carle Museum, which is devoted to the art of the picture book and especially the children's book. How did collaborating with the Eric Carle Museum influence the way you present these works at the high. Thanks so much for asking the question, Lois. I was just saying to Andrea, you know, before we got on that collaborating with the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art has made me a a better educator uh, personally, but it's also made the High Museum, I think, a better presenter of our exhibitions for children with children in mind. They just do such incredible work up in Hamhurst at this purpose-built museum that has children at the center of their mission. They are our co-organizers for this exhibition. We began talking with them more than three years ago about wanting to do this kind of project around the civil rights movement and history and about around all these incredible books. And immediately, the Carl was thrilled to join us in being thinking partners and knew that they had wonderful works in their archives, in their collection that could be part of this. But they also knew on their board of directors that they had the perfect curator. And so we were able through this partnership to invite Andrea Pinckney to be the curator of this show, to be the visionary, to be our guiding light in pulling something together that is unlike anything that the high has ever done. We have done these monographic single artist exhibitions with the Carl in the past, and they've been extraordinary and powerful for our audiences, but this is a multi-artist exhibition. This is really, as we've noted, this is important content that children and families and caregivers and grandparents and neighbors and friends need to be thinking about, talking about, learning about. And as you've heard from Andrea, she was the perfect person to be our curator for this. So it's a very generative relationship and I cannot say enough good things about the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book <laughs> Art. It's a special place. Well, I think it's a feather in the cap of the high that you have this partnership and that you were able to connect with Andrea through it. Andrea, I enjoyed reading that You and your husband have two young children. May I ask their ages? Yes. Well, our children aren't so young anymore. (laughs) We have a daughter who is 24 and a son who has just turned 21. I wondered if you still try out these stories on them. We absolutely still involve our children in our collaborative work. Uh, In fact, just yesterday... My husband, Brian, had brought home some preliminary work for a new book that he is uh, working on. And our son, 
Dobbin, we all sat at the dining room table and looked through the artwork and, you know, had a great exchange about Brian's illustrations. So they're very much involved and uh, we value and often solicit their feedback. Reading these books by other artists whose works will be part of the exhibition Picture the Dream just reinforced the notion that picture books don't have to be limited to children to appreciate the topic, the drawings, or spark conversations. I'm intrigued, Virginia, with the fact that discussions for this exhibit started three years ago. This was before the global reckoning now that we have about racial injustice. Certainly three years before John Lewis's death. For both of you, what does it feel like to be opening this exhibition on activism now? Well, when we embarked on the exhibition, again, on the the kind of genesis of it in the beginning three years ago, we never could have imagined that the time in which it was opening, when the high was literally hanging the paintings on the wall, that outside, as you say, Lois, you know, there was a, a global movement around Black Lives Matter. Of course, Black Lives Matter had been, uh, you know, doing some wonderful work and that there was a lot of activism going on. But for Picture the Dream to be opening at this historic moment, it cannot be more relevant. And it speaks to the power of literature to foster those conversations and that journey. And again, it's, it's so timely with the recent and unfortunate passing of Congressman John Lewis. It is the perfect opportunity for children, families to come together around these issues. Um, I wanna mention too that as I started to say previously, Lois, the exhibition is divided into three key sections. So the sections are a backward path, what it was like before today, segregation, Jim Crow, separate and not equal, what happened, that's part two of the exhibition, the rocks in the road, what came as a result of so many injustices, lynchings, uh, what came as a result of those things? And that part two is the rocks of the road. So marches, protests, people coming together. And then the final part of the exhibition, part three, Today's Journey, Tomorrow's Promise. And that's where we are. Today's journey. We are on this journey together. And we have young people who are the readers of picture books, you know, young people out there fostering tomorrow's promise and making the future something that we can all feel good about. Mm. Virginia, will this exhibition be available online as well as on view at the museum? Excellent question. I will say the exhibition is slated to travel. So it will go to the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art in the spring. And we, on our website, will have a lot of content uh, in addition to images from the exhibition. But the real thing, is the best thing. 
And so we do encourage everyone to come and see these works of art at the High Museum in person. They're extraordinary. I've just been saying, you know, to Andrea, they glow. They draw you in these works of art. They're incredibly detailed. They're so beautiful and impactful. And our galleries are quite modest right now. Everyone knows the high to be a very busy place. Right now, it's a very reflective place and a very respectful place where people are very respectful of social distancing and all of the kinds of things that we have to do. But it, it is a, a spiritual experience within the museum right now. And I can't think of anything really more spiritual than being in Picture the Dream. It's, it's really special. Co-curators, Virginia Shearer, and award-winning children's author, Andrea Davis Pinckney. The High Museum's exhibition, Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books, opens Saturday, August 15th, and will be on view through November 8th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, we'll talk with the director of Starting at Zero, a new documentary on the importance of early childhood education. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzitz. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.